That is Creature O'Clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. Roar! And open the door to join us for the 13th meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm Fruit Bat Barber Mike. And I'm Sheeple Herder Meredith. We meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. (laughs) To talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow! Saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom, Animalia. Yay! Yay! Those names creep up on me every time. I know. I've started writing them ahead of time. I need to put that on my to-do list because it creeps up on me and then I'm disappointed in my performance. I've made an outline on Google Docs for the episodes where I have my intro name, what I want to talk about in the intro, what my animal is what my commercial is. It's all just laid out. And now that I've told Meredith listeners, Meredith already knows, I've been exploring fonts. I love fonts. I loved them, especially like when we got the first PC, like word processing program or like kid picks, getting to play with all that shit. Wow. Kid picks. Loved kid picks. That sounds sinister now. I know. The most innocent paintbrush on steroids is now. Pederasty on steroids. Yeah. Is that the word well, you were looking for? Sure. I don't know what I was looking for. I'm just sad about the decline of innocence. I think that's a reasonable thing to be sad about. <laughs> so how was your week in animals, Mike? My week in animals was pretty good. I think that the most noticeable animal that I encountered in several locations on several late night shows on the internet in various forms was Diego the stud tortoise, who helped repopulate his <gasps> tortoise population with his insatiable sex drive. I Yes, I read about Diego, and he's like, He's up there too. He's like a hundred years <laughs> He's old. He's a hundred and still trucking. Still trucking. Still Go, just, Diego. you know, making as many baby tortoises as he possibly can. And I learned a little bit about tortoise sex. I'm not going to lie. It's been a recurring theme on here. <laughs> so they do it, I guess it's tortoise style, but it kind of looks like doggy style. Where yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Where like dude rubs his plastron up upon the carapace of the lady tortoise. Nice. Yeah. So remember the plastron is like the catcher pad and yeah. then the carapace is the back shell. And so he kind of wedges up and creates sort of a right angle. Uh-huh. If you put your hands on top of each other and then lift your top hand up, the heel of the hand is on the top of your wrist. That's kind yeah. of what tortoises look like when they're doing it. Totally. And then they kind of like rear their heads back and scream and just make tortoise sex sounds. I read something on thetortoiseshop.com, <laughs> which let's just talk about the accuracy of the tortoise shop. I don't know. I haven't fact checked this. Allegedly, lady tortoises can lay fertilized eggs for years after they are fertilized. Wow. So they just hold on to them somewhere? Yeah, I guess. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. I just heard about this last week. I mean, I guess I knew this implicitly, but hadn't really thought about it. How as a woman, or I guess any of us, we were contained within our grandmother's bodies because of the way that when your mom was fertilized, she's born with all of her eggs that then in turn became you. Oh. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Yeah. I just felt so much more connected to my grandmother. I know, right? (laughs) That's kind of nice. I like that a lot, actually. Beyond just being a glint. In your grandmother's eye, you were also a molecule of something, ovum, in her uterus. 
That's kind of exciting, I guess. Let's, let's contemplate our grandmother's uteri. <laughs> I don't really know for sure, but I don't think the tortoise has a uterus. Yeah, I have no idea. Like, I don't think that it's ovoviviparous. No. I don't think the babies hatch inside. I think it lays eggs, and then the eggs hatch. Coming off of my research for this week, I'm just like a little overwhelmed by the complexity of all these systems. I'm a little bit burnt out at the moment. Oh, okay, sure. Well, we don't have to talk about the reproductive system of turtles. It's not that I'm not interested. I'm just a little bit like overwhelmed in this moment, if I'm going to be completely honest. Sure, that's fair. Well, then I'll kind of go a bit tangential here and tell you that there was one comedian, I think it was Seth Meyers when he was reporting on this. And he included a picture. This is an iconic photograph, which Mm -hmm. we will catch up on the Instagram, everybody. Yeah, we've been. (laughs) And we will post this photo on the Instagram. But I think it was Seth Meyers that put a fedora on Diego, the stud tortoise. (laughs) Of course. And he's just kind of looking at the camera like, yeah! (laughs) And all his photographs. No teeth. He's got like old turtle mouth. Old turtle mouth, exactly. He's just like, and is he a Galapagos tortoise or is he another kind? Yeah. And it was something like there were only a couple hundred of his tortoises left. And then since the 70s, he's been in captivity and he's just been breeding with the best of them. I That's guess you could say. Apparently. It's been, you know, 30, 40 years of just getting down to business, yeah. rubbing his plaster on up upon the sexy carapace of all these lady tortoises. And, yes. you know, it's not documented, but probably a few male tortoises too. I think Diego's just like any Chloe will do sort of yeah equal equal opportunity reproducing yeah or at least attempts you go diego go diego go yeah i think in animal news this week i think it was yesterday morning you know when you like go back to sleep after having woken up and you'll have like a series of very elaborate realistic dreams yes or like nap dreams i'm acutely aware of that twilight period between like just waking up and then actually getting out of bed four hours later i know a lot about that time yes well yesterday morning i had a dream that i was doing this podcast but with somebody who i see at work who i know nothing about i don't even know her name but i was like going about like setting up the equipment and stuff and i happened to go out on the balcony of where i live and there was just this cavalcade of creatures just like outside so first i saw a giant anteater on a rock what i know this was a dream where's the balcony here i don't know in my dream, there was a in balcony. I know balcony? hearing people recount their dreams no, is so lame. I think it would be out that way. I think the balcony would be on that side of the apartment. Yeah, but it was just this like mass of like water and rocks. And then there were like all these creatures that had no business being aquatic friends were just all out there. So there was like a rock with a giant anteater on it. There were other giant anteaters swimming around in the water. Huh. Then I saw a rhino. Then I saw a bunch of tortoises. Oh. Big old tortoises coming up and they would just kind of swim up and then just like open their mouths as if they wanted to be fed. Oh. And there were baby elephants swimming around. That's cute. And I was just like tickled by it. I wasn't flabbergasted. It was as if I would often go out on my balcony and see animals of the dry African savanna swimming around perching on rocks. Sure. In southern New York. So I don't know what this means. The Freudian reading of what's going on in my subconscious and what these long, these giant anteaters represent to me. Either way, I've got animals on the brain and it's yeah. really cute. I think any listeners should feel free to send in their Freudian interpretations of Meredith's dreams <laughs> to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. <laughs> Please help me. I don't know what to say to that. I guess that's kind of nice. I feel like most of my dreams that involve apartments and animals are more Ace Ventura variety (laughs) where they like are all kind of hiding because they know that they have to hide, but it's, they all just swoop on to me as I'm holding my arms outstretched and singing. 
That's lovely as well. Yeah. Oh, great. I guess it's time to kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. Let's do it. Ready? Ready? Okay. Taxana you. Taxana we. Taxana who? Taxana me. Kingdom. Animalia. Get it? We like animals. Phylum. Echinodermata. Radial symmetry. Class. Astrioidae. Don't you dare call them fish. Order. Valvatita. They're little sea stars. Family. Gonasteridae. Biscuit stars. Genus. Sarah, master deep water cushion stars. Species. Sarah, master articus. Delicious treats of the northern deep. It's the Arctic cookie star. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I kind of knew that we were going into sort of like a starfish or jellyfish situation around the it's not a fish. Yes. There was something you said after that that made me think like, oh, this is definitely starfish. Well, they're tiny little sea stars. Well, yes. (laughs) What was the family? You might be wondering about asteroidae. Like asteroid, asteroid. Oh, that's interesting. Asteroidae. That's don't you dare call them fish. That's the class. Okay. And then the order is Valvatida. When I was saying earlier that I was getting very overwhelmed, this is so intense. I don't know what it is about these echinoderms, but there's just a lot going on and it's very hard for me to wrap my head around. I just got very overwhelmed. I had a similar experience. So echinoderms, that's where it splits off from the kingdom Animalia. So we're already not in the phylum of Chordata. Okay. We're already outside my realm of comfort. Sure. And familiarity. So we're in the echinoderms. Echinoderms include such stars of the sea as starfish, sea urchins. So those are the ones with like the spikies. Yes. Then like sand dollars that we know. And then sea cucumbers who kind of just look like those, not to malign the sea cucumbers, but they just look like turds. Sure. Yeah, they sea do kind of look like sea turds. Which is fine. To each his own. No yeah, judgment. everybody poops. Everybody poops. And these guys just happen to look like poop. Um, so echinoderm is referring to echinos, echinos, which is hedgehog in Greek. Oh. Isn't that fun? And then skin. So like hedgehog skin. So they're all going to be a little bit spiny, kind of rough. And I think that's about as far as I'm going to go with that. Because this is just, like I said. It's its own phylum. It's its own phylum, so I can't really. There's not enough time really to go into all of this because we gotta work through all these other, all these other ranks. Your five pointed starfish plan. Exactly, I have a five point agenda here. Getting back into our cookie, our Arctic cookie. So when we get into the class of Asteroidae, so this is where it breaks off into starfish or sea stars but i think the more popular nomenclature now is definitely sea stars because like i said they're not fish at all they're a completely different phylum so when you're that far up in the taxonomy rankings that's like so different because they're not even vertebrates yeah fish or chordata so like to call them fish is like crazy it's more just saying that they're a creature that lives in the sea right they're marine so they're fish no and then we go into the valvatida which is great word yeah who doesn't like a valvatita so this is just an order of starfish and then we get into the Teridae, largest family of sea stars they are the most deep dwelling species but some of them will exist in shallow pools and then we get into the genus of saramaster saramaster and these guys are a little bit they're called cushion stars They look kind of like cushiony. They're like chubby. They're a little chubby. They're little chonksters. They're different in that they don't have like the distinct limbs. Mike, just to show you, this is a chonky little sea star. It almost looks like a 
pentagon that's been smushed in on the sides. It's yes. less like a long limbed right. and more like a flying squirrel. That's exactly it. They've got kind of, if you can imagine like the membrane of the skin that connects the legs of the flying squirrel or the um, sugar glider if you're in sure. Australia. Yes. It's kind of what this looks like. So they're not these long, you know, distinguishable limbs, but they're more broad limbed, if that makes sense. Let's talk about these guys. So I got the idea to do the Arctic Sea Cookie from one of my favorite Instagram accounts. It's Joel Sartore, I believe is his name. If you follow any of like the Nat Geo wildlife stuff or accounts, he is responsible for this thing called the photo arc, where he essentially takes these gorgeous, gorgeous photos of all kinds of animals around the world in various zoos or whatever and gives a little blurb about them. So he'd be an unofficial friend of the podcast, though he doesn't know it. And essentially his idea is collecting all these photos as a means of awareness, ultimately with the idea of if we're increasing this awareness that we could maybe save some of these species from possible extinction. That's great. Photo arc. So there was a picture of the Arctic Sea Cookie on Joel Sartore's site or on his Instagram page. And I was like flipping through. I was like, why does he have cookies on here? Because it really looks like a cookie. Yeah. It's this basic, very broad star shaped. And it looks like it's covered with pink icing with little red specks, which could be like sprinkles or like icing accents. And it just looks like this bite-sized little snack. But it's actually a sea star. It's a rare cookie. Um, and that it's only found off of the uh, northwest coast of North America. The northwest coast of North America. So yes. this Arctic sea cookie is like in the Alaska region. Yes. And even potentially like, well, I guess it wouldn't get much more northern than that. But like around there. Does Santa like an Arctic sea cookie? Santa likes all the little creatures. But he knows better than to eat them. Right. He knows that a, it's better to spend a fun evening hanging out with an Arctic sea cookie than it is to eat the Arctic sea cookie with yes. milk. Yes. I could say these guys are probably not, they're not going to have a good crunch. Okay. No chocolate chips. Though I did read that one species of sea star feeds upon a sponge that's called like the chocolate puff sponge. What? <laughs> I know. These are such whimsical creature names. I do love that. Or like is Linnaeus like Carl Linnaeus and his associates just hungry? I think so. I think anybody that's really into Linnaean philosophy and organizational systems probably likes to eat sweets. I just picture them all as these like Scandinavian, very rotund, mustachioed men. I think you're probably right. (laughs) Because we have obviously like the more typical quote unquote starfish with those long limbs that we think about, associate with the sea. And then we also have the sand dollars, which are these iconic images of marine life. These guys are kind of in between, you know? Sure. The sand dollar is just round, whereas with the Arctic sea cookie, it's like you start to get a little bit of indentation creating that pentagonal shape. Yeah. And then you move into like the full sea star region of like clearly defined limbs. Do you remember the Animorphs books where it would show on the cover the picture of the person morphing from a human to like a panther yes. or like a iguana or whatever? Absolutely. It sounds like if the cover of the Animorphs book was morphing <laughs> from a sea star to a sand dollar, yes. that your sea cookie would be right in the middle. Exactly. Cool. Probably the closest cousin of the Arctic sea cookie is their cosmopolitan cousin, the cookie star. Ooh. And that is kind of found from Alaska all the way down to the tip of South America and also off the coasts of like New Zealand and Australia. 
they're a little bit more well-traveled versus yeah. their Arctic cookie friends who just, they're more homebodies. They just like to stay calm in the deep waters of the, I guess, Arctic Ocean. Or no, Pacific Ocean. Definitely Pacific Ocean. Yeah, definitely the Pacific Ocean. My ocean geography is not great. And so when it comes to, like, mating rituals, how these guys eat, how they move, this is where I was just like, whoa, I need, like, an entire day to sift through this. So I really feel like I've, I've failed all of our clubbies out there and that I did not realize what I was getting into. I pulled a classic Meredith and put this off to the last minute only to realize that I was in way over my head. <laughs> because when it comes to, like, reproduction, it's like some species are asexually reproductive. Others are not. And I think they were saying you can't even really gender these guys or sex these guys without seeing how they spawn in the first place. And then when it comes to the Arctic sea cookie or cookie star, I should say, there's just nothing about reproductive habits, really how they go about eating, how they go about moving. I don't even know if these guys move much. My assumption would be just looking at these pictures that there is like some sort of system of, I guess, funneling water through their internal systems and there's some way. I don't know. I don't know. And I could sit here and read Wikipedia to you, but I don't feel like that's fair. I think that maybe a point in all of this is that outside of our phylum of chordata and even like outside of, you know, our insect friends that we have at least some understanding of how they work, there's all these other things that just don't make any sense in those applying those systems to it. Yes, exactly. I'm feeling a little bit guilty and like that feeling, that sinking feeling in your stomach when you don't have your homework done as well as your classmates. And you're like, wow, I really phoned this one in and now I'm going to pay for it. But maybe in this way, we could say that the reproductive and feeding habits of this sea cookie are analogous to queerness. And you are used to this so-called standard to us system of reproduction in feeding, which I guess would be heteronormativity. And you've only just discovered this little sector of queerness that is the sea star. Yes. And at this point, you're just entirely overwhelmed, but you're trying to proceed forward with an open heart yes, and an open mind. But at this point, you just haven't quite digested the information enough where you feel comfortable communicating it. Right. Thank you, Mike. That was a very beautiful analogy you constructed there. And I, you know, I feel like I do want to come back to this and maybe just do like a quick, let's just talk about how sea stars reproduce real quick, maybe on a future episode. Yeah. Or maybe I can put it in the Instagram or something because I am like, I'm feeling very sorry. It's hard to find the specificity without, I'm sure, like going through a lot of like academic scientific papers as to like what applies specifically to the Arctic cookie star that might not apply maybe to like the common cookie star. I'm just wondering like if I were to go far back to like echinoderms or then into the next classification down the asteroidae, how specific can that be to my specific species here sure and it's hard to find that specificity because it's like some asexually reproduce and some don't i'm like does that apply to my cookie oh is it at the individual level where some asexually reproduce and some don't right and that's where i'm having trouble getting like the correct information i think well if only there were some sort of sea star tumbler I know. And you know, you could learn about all of this. There's an external link listed here called Sea Stars of the Pacific Northwest. And then you click on it, and it's like, what does it tell me? Not found. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's funny. Someone like gave up on that link. Well, maybe we just knew too many of their secrets. I think so. I remember seeing time lapse footage of sea stars in one of those like planet Earths or whatever. Because mm-hmm. you know when you're just looking at them, you're like, what are these guys up to? Like, what's going on with yeah. these sea stars? But if you watch sped up time lapse footage, you can see how they all kind of scurry in one direction and then they scurry in another direction and everything. Mm-hmm. They're just experiencing time different than we Absolutely. Do. They move very, very slowly. And I read kind of like a snarky little thing. There's like one sea star that feeds upon other sea stars. But the only way for like the sea star being fed upon would be to like scurry away quickly. But that's tough because these guys are very slow movers. I see. I'm like, why even put that in there? But yeah, but then there's also like the common thing that a lot of people know about sea stars in general is about their detachable limbs. So they're able to, I think this is a general thing, but I don't know, again, I don't know how this applies to a more broad limb chonkster like the sea cookie because there's not really a limb that's easily detachable. Right. Maybe it's just like a it can just be like a chomp out of the thing it can just kind of release its cells from each other or something yeah i really don't know i'm not sure now i'm like really wanting to get in there on this so they're able to regenerate which is another crazy thing that us cordata we have no knowledge of that so this is again a whole world of craziness that i just cannot conceive through my own embodied experience you know i think that you're showing maybe your i don't want to say cordata privilege but it's absolutely cordata privilege or just privileging of my cordata perspective because it's the only perspective i know right i think it's highlighting the limited window through which you understand how or maybe we because i don't i don't know anything about sea stars either i don't mean to make this a you situation you know maybe this is just highlighting the limited window through which i feel like perhaps both of us have experienced our understanding of animals is that there's right just these huge gaps of knowledge and misunderstanding and at least when we learn words like plastron we could be like oh that's what that is you right know? right with i don't even remember what you were saying about the sea star was there another water column like there was in my warty comb jelly i think i think so i think there are these like what like internal systems that water moves through but again, I'm not entirely sure if that relates to mobility. I read something about it, like AIDS and like the releasing of gases. Toxins? Does it release toxins? I'm sure. I'm sure. But again, it's just like, whew, this is going to take me an, like an evening of just reading through this, reading through it again, linking to outside articles that might explain a particular process better. Sure. But I just did not leave myself enough time. Well, it's just another swamp rabbit nest to get lost in, I guess. Yeah, exactly. But I'll report back. Or maybe we can do a segment in an upcoming episode where we just kind of like, maybe not make it species specific, but just talk about sea stars more generally. Yeah, I love that. I think that, uh, you know, I'm all about representation of all the phylums. Mm -hmm. And I've definitely dipped my toe in the, you know, alternative phylum (laughs) ecosystem, if you will. Totally. Or at least the non-cordata, the non-mainstream cordata right. phylums. And I feel like I've learned a lot. And yeah. I also feel like there's tons that I don't know. So maybe this is, you know, fruit for us moving forward, right? Delicious cookie fruit. Exactly. Well, it just made me really appreciate, like, the great job you did with the sea walnut jelly. The warty comb jelly? The warty comb jelly because you made a lot of sense and presented it very cogently. Oh, thank you. And I was <laughs> chuckling. No, it's hard. We've talked about this before. Like, I go so deep with this that I'm, mm-hmm. like, 10 hours into researching this freaking comb jelly, you know? Yeah. 
And it's really good for me to focus my energy. You actually have to do things with your day <laughs> most days, unlike me. Although, I don't know. It's picking up again. That's good, yeah. The end of January, you know. Yeah. January is always slow. I wish. Very fast for me these days, but that's okay. Why don't we take a break so you can catch your breath? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Jenny, now you've heard of any number of the animal-centric coverings out there. Horse blankets, doggy raincoats. What about kitten mittens? Yes, Jenny, even kitten mittens. Okay, Miranda, so where are you going with this? Well, Jenny, there is one animal that comes to mind when you think, boy, do they need a decorative covering for that exposed surface. What creature do you think of? Well, I do know the narwhal tusk is an extremely sensitive collection of nerve endings constantly transmitting information about water salinity. Maybe they could use some protection. That's exactly right, Jenny. Now, no narwhal will go uncovered with Brand Clubby's new tooth protectors. How do they work? Do they come in fun colors? I'm so glad you asked, Jenny. Simply approach your narwhal, but quietly, they are quite shy, and slide the tooth protector down over their tusk. And with prints ranging from solid to shimmery to purple velvet for your Catholic narwhals, and even cow print for your zany narwhals, there's a cover for every narwhal personality. Wait a minute, did you say tusk? I sure did, Jenny. Never forget, narwhals sport both tooth and tusk. One of the embarrassing facts about me as a child and my animal love is that I was a multiple-year subscriber to Cat Fancy magazine. I'm so glad you said that. (laughs) Because I loved cats. And I, and often to the point, like, I would, I also subscribed and I would also take them out from the library. I would get, like, back issues from the library. Heavy. And so I thought we could take a little bit of time to talk about Cat Fancy. And I just looked this up and I'm giggling because the first issue was published in 1965. I mean, I'll draw all the analogs like Playboy in that. Each episode would be dedicated to a particular, like, playmate. This one... Every issue would be dedicated to a specific breed right. of cat. <laughs> right. And, and then it, there would be a poster on the inside. I was going to say, <laughs> I was, in preparing for this, I was kind of like pet magazines or animal magazines and Cat Fancy came up and I have read the Wikipedia article about yeah. Cat Fancy. Like you just said, every issue is dedicated to the breed and then it would come with a cat and I just love to imagine walking into the bedroom of the girl that has 40... <laughs> cat fancy cat posters up like the subscriptions she's had it for four years and she's hung up every single poster of every single cat she's run out of real estate in her room that would have been me had my mom let me put posters up (laughs) good on your mom for having rules about just your cat obsession i know we had to we had to put a bag on it (laughs) so to speak (laughs) so funny this is saying late 2014 cat fancy and dog fancy boo were canceled but I do love this fact that in the summer of 2009, Cat Fancy launched a spinoff magazine called Natural Cat about alternative nutrition and medicine, such as organic cat foods and herbal therapy. The whole foods of cat. No, not even just the whole foods. The whole foods like circular, like the whole foods subscription yeah. magazine for cat. Man, that seems like jumping the shark at that point. 
But I do love that now Cat Fancy is alternatively named Catster. Catster. And isn't there like a dogster? There's also dogster that began in February 2015. Like, what was that meeting like where we're like, we got to rebrand? I don't even know. I guess we don't really talk about fancying things anymore. Oh, I really fancy that that cactus over there. But you, you're like, I'm a real like cactus influencer. You know, like sure. everything's like a stir or an er. And so maybe like cat stir is like, I'm a real cat stir. Yeah, that sounds about right. It's much more like hip, I think. It does sound hip. I think that even in the 90s, when I was aware of Cat Fancy for the first time, I was like, this is kind of an antiquated name for this publication. I know. But also, I mean, who is subscribing to Cat Fancy? People who are of that era. It's People probably who fancy cats. Yeah, it's probably a bunch of old biddies out there in their retirement communities. I would say that in general, screened media has taken us away from print media. Of course. So surely this is the era of 75 channels on cable. Nothing would be on and you'd sit down and read your cat fancy magazine rather than going out to the blockbuster or Hollywood video and renting some sort of film. Right. What a silly thing. Like, I would even, like, write in sometimes to them. Because they would have, like, a photo caption contest. Oh, yeah? And I would write in. And there was one time where, like, it wasn't that mine was picked, but it was, like, I had sent in the caption that, like, most other people had sent in. Sure. So they were, like, most people said... Look, ma, no cavities. When it was like a kitten, like burying its teeth, and then they'd have like the honorable mention and the winning caption. I see. So I was I participated in cat fancy. I'm not surprised to hear that. It's where I first learned about my love of the Russian blue breed. Uh huh. Just beautiful gray kitties, almost with like a blue tinge to their fur. That's fun. So I've always wanted a gray kiki. After that, yet to get one. Right on. Yeah. Well, my animal magazine is more of just a general nature magazine, but I feel I like it. it's the cornerstone of early expression and interest in animals and nature and things was National Geographic. Hell yeah, absolutely. I had a subscription for years in my yeah. childhood and then into adulthood. And uh, I recently threw out actually a bunch of old issues. But I would just love it for the photos. Mm -hmm. And I would read the articles sometimes, but mostly I was there for the pictures. And that's how I know about the bowerbirds that we were talking about earlier. The ones who build their elaborate houses and then dance out in front to just be like... This is my sexy pad. Look yeah. at the flowers that I got for you. I built this house out of twigs. Look at my bottle cap collection. Yes. And so the lady cute. bottle bird, the lady bower birds are like, um, I don't like punk music. And then they like <laughs> fly away, you know? Totally. That was also a lot of like sea creatures was mm-hmm. an introduction through that. I remember those types of stories, you know? Totally. More than like arboreal, like North American creatures. It was kind of a way to see the rest of the world from the comfort of my home. Yeah, I remember my dad had a subscription to that for a long time. Even if you didn't want to read the articles, which were generally great. Usually had an angle that was, like, interesting and insightful. Right. Always had that kind of, like, spin of just, like, well, consider this, you know. Yeah. And then I remember I had a subscription to it when I first got an iPad years ago. Oh. And it was a great subscription. It wasn't a super cheap one, but it was, like, extra cool because there would be extra, like, features, like animated graphics or links to videos that you could watch. Just like the articles would come alive, so That's to speak. Fun. Yeah, so it was, a, I would say, as far as like magazine subscriptions that are worth getting in a more screen format, this is a great one because there are so many of these graphics and so many of these things that 
are so like for instance i remember there was one about like the ruins in syria and you could do like 360 views of things and like zoom in on things and super duper cool i like that i just never read it like i could never i never had enough time to actually like sit down and read these things you have to focus on it that's one thing i love yeah, about yeah you have to like make time for it and mm-hmm. i'm not good at that obviously hey we all have our strengths you know Texana you Texana we Texana who Texana me Kingdom and Amelia they can move Phylum Anthropoda Exoskeletons are super spooky Flask Insecta Three-part bodies, six legs. Order. Coley Patera, John Paul, Ringo, George. Beatles. Family. Patina Day. They like wood, but not all wood-boring beetles. Genus. Xenobium. That sounds like a medicine. Species. Rufovillisum, the Death Watch beetle. Don't intersect with this unlucky insect. I tried to get too much information. It was it was supposed to be family. Pinidae. They like wood. Genus. Xenobium. That sounds like a medicine. But I wanted to share that not all wood-boring beetles are pinidae. Because, again, the Coleoptera are beetle friends. Yes. 400,000 species, 40% of all insects, 25% of all known animals are beetles, which is terrifying. Say that again. 400,000 species of beetles. 40% of all insects described, you know, everything that's described in scientific literature, are Beetles, 40% of all insect species and 25% of all known animal species. That is, if you got four animals in a room, one of them would be a beetle. That's insane. My mouth is agape. Yes, quite. Yeah, that's why I had you say it again because I was like, hold on. Because like I, I was listening, but then like all these stats were just flying at me and like slapping me across the face. And I'm yeah. like, whoa, 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 whoa. Calm down with the stat slap. That's a real stat slap. That's insane. 25%. Of all animals. Yeah, the biomass alone is astounding. That's so crazy. And that is, at what level is that? The Coleoptera. Coleoptera. That's the order. Order, okay. So we have gotcha. kingdom is animal, phylum is anthropods, exoskeletons, bugs and lobsters. Yeah. Class, insecta, insects. Yep. Then the order is Coleoptera, beetles. Okay. Then the family, the Patinidae. Tinidae. They're larvae like wood generally, but they're not okay. the only wood boring beetles. Then the genus, Cestobium, it sounds like a medicine. Yes. And this is like spider beetles and these Death Watch beetles. That's kind of the collection of them. Okay. I don't totally understand what a spider beetle is. <laughs> You'll remember the other beetle that we had was the common eastern firefly, the Big Dipper firefly, which right. we dubbed the Mormon slut bug. Yes. Because it would exist in this larval stage for a while. And then when it would emerge as a firefly, what we call a firefly, which is not a fly, it's a beetle. Yes, again, these misnomers. Then it would spend a month just engaging in wild sexual <laughs> excitements. With every man who flew her way. Yeah. Who barely flashed his light organ at her. Right. She yeah. loves a light organ <laughs> with the lucibifagans or whatever they're called. Yeah. So the Death Watch beetle, as I've said, it is a wood-boring beetle. Mm-hmm. So the larvae infest structural timbers of old buildings okay. or old logs, okay? Okay. The eggs are white. They're slightly pointed at one end, and they're sticky. 
they are 0.7 millimeters in length and 0.5 millimeters in width. So they're tiny little eggs and they get laid in like dark crevices and stuff. So they hatch into these creamy white larvae with six legs, black jaws, and a pair of eye spots. Okay. The majority of the life cycle of this beetle, like with our Big Dipper firefly, who could be a larva for like a year or two. Yeah. These death watch beetles spend the majority of life at their larval stage. They will bore into the timber and be there for 10 years just munching on delicious wood. And then they will pupate and emerge from the wood as adult beetles. Oh, okay. I'm just imagining, okay? Say you've like got this home right? Uh-huh. You're living, you move in, you like raise children into like elementary school age children. And all of a sudden out of your beautiful home emerge bugs. That have been living in the wall throughout your been... child's adolescence. Yes. Well, if these walls could talk, honey. Oh, these walls could swarm and scurry. Yeah. It's kind Ugh. of gross. They generally like wood that has been damp and is affected by fungus. So it's nice and soft. And they have specialized enzymes to digest the cellulose and hemicellulose in the wood. Apparently, hemicellulose is a thing. I don't know what that is. Hemipenes? Yeah, it's the hemipene of cellulose. (laughs) We're talking Europe. We're talking North America. We're talking New Caledonia. We're talking Algeria and Corsica. These guys are cosmopolitan. Well, yeah, but like very northern, like... Northern hemisphere, like laterally cosmopolitan. Sure. Demi-cosmopolitan. Yes. They evolved in decaying hardwoods, like occasionally a coniferous wood. They will wait until the tree has been dead for 60 years. Like an oak tree falls in the forest. It makes a sound because animals are there. Right. It makes a sound. Like sound is a physical phenomenon. Like I don't have time for this. Right. And then after about 60 years, these beetles show up and they're like, yeah, there's been a lot of fungus on this log. Like it's kind of looks soft and chewy. I'm going to lay my eggs here. And then those eggs hatch and the larvae kind of live in it for 10 years. And then they emerge as adult beetles. And then they lay their eggs on the same log. And multiple generations of these beetles will live on this dead tree until it is completely gone. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I think in that way, it's a little bit more endearing. Yeah. Like an heirloom. It's completely like an heirloom. Like here's this heirloom log. Yeah. Yeah, That we're eventually just going to feed off of until it's all gone. And then we have to relocate, which would be like traveling across the Atlantic in the, you know, origin stories of many families in the United States. Sure. I think that sounds fun. A little seafaring beetle. Yeah. Chomping on the wood of the boat. Well, we just took it somewhere else. Well, I think like, we're mixing our metaphors now. But. Well, but the adults don't eat, so they die after like three or four weeks. Oh. So the beetles wouldn't be hitching a ride. They'd lay their eggs, and then their little larva would be hitching the ride. Right. I'm just saying in terms of like... You're imagining larva checking in through Ellis Island with like yes, little on babushkas. A new, on a new log, because they dissolve their old log. Oh. They've oh. sapped it of nutrients okay. to the point where they have to find a new log. I see. I was imagining literally the bugs migrating on a ship across the Atlantic oh, Ocean. That would totally make sense, because there's probably some old wood in those ships. That's Likely. Damp, yeah, growing some fungus, perfect as well. Um, Welcome to Mixed Analogies with Mike and Meredith. Yeah, here we go. We're going to talk about the emergence of the beetles. Okay. So we're talking April, May, or June. Once it's above like 10 degrees Celsius, the adults will emerge. They will mate in a concealed location, normally like a surface wood. Mating lasts about an hour. 
The females then lay the eggs in the crevices of the woods or in holes left by emerging beetles. Typically 40 to 80 eggs in small batches. If the ladies aren't near a suitable log, they can smell the old decaying wood to find out where to lay their eggs. As I've already said, they die after a few weeks, the adults do, and the eggs hatch after about a month, and then the larvae just start feeding. Okay. So these adults, when they're looking for a mate, what they'll do is they'll tap, tap, tap to communicate, and they will take their head and they'll hit it on the log, like a substrate of the log. The males will do that, and then the females will respond, and then the males will turn their bodies and walk towards the female and do it again, and then she'll respond, and then he'll like keep going until they meet okay the tapping bouts are usually four to eleven taps and about like 10 taps per second ladies only respond if there are six or more taps if you do five taps the ladies are going to be like ah Uh -uh. that wasn't enough taps (laughs) i'm just picturing like the uh, hours some poor undergrad research assistant in the lab logging number of taps just over days and days weeks and weeks months and months yeah to get to this amount of detailed information. And they were expressed in hertz as like cycles per second, how many taps per second, four to 20 hertz. Oh my gosh. With males who tap faster, generally more easily finding a mate. Mike, did you pick these guys because they're like percussion analogs? No, I picked these because this is episode number 13, and I googled unlucky creatures. Okay. And the Death Watch beetle came up. I remember it from Practical Magic. Wait, who was in that? Was like Nicole Kidman, Sandra Bullock? I think so. Okay, I never you saw know, it. You know, I never but... know the divas. You haven't seen Practical Magic? No, I just couldn't. I remember the cover of it at Blockbuster. I watch it like 12 times every Halloween season. <laughs> the scene where she's like has the tea and the spoons like spinning itself in the tea, and then they sing like Lime and the Coconut. You know, it's just about, like, strong women being women together. Yeah. And I think of it every time I grab my tiger's eye necklace. I'm always like, I don't have my tiger's eye. (laughs) But the Death Watch Beetle makes a couple appearances in that film. Whoa. Because the thought is that when you hear it, it is portending death. The tap, tap, tap (gasps) of the Death Watch Beetle is what is, like, somebody's going to die now. Oh my and it's gosh. a major plot point in Practical Magic. No spoilers. You just looked around as if there was like a peanut gallery of like. <sighs> well, I noticed there's this sombrero on your new plant. And I wasn't sure if somebody oh, yeah, was Harold. hiding in the plant or if it was Harold's sombrero. So it is. It used to be Tostito's sombrero, but right. Tostito needs a new hat now yeah. or whatever. No one needs to know the inner workings of my plant hat wearing. I do have to say there's a number of hats on things. There's a hat on that fake bird. There's a hat on that bottle of gin it appears to be Bailey's there's a crown on that is that Mozart that's Mozart on the Mozart book next to the pigeon yeah there's a lot of whimsicality happening there's a hat on our my Swedish chef finger puppet (laughs) so the death watch beetle actually got its name because you can hear them clicking on a quiet Oh, like summer evening, you know, because April, May, June. So they're, that's oh. that's when they're born. Right, and right, right. the thought is that if you are keeping a vigil next to the dead or the dying, then you would hear them as you're sitting there silent. With Whoa. Them. Yeah. So that's more where the name comes from. It's not that it portends death. It's that like while you're kind of sitting there, you hear the Death Watch beetle. Wow. Okay. It's the beetle you hear when you are on a death watch. Is this like probably some of the like cacophony of noises that you hear around in more quiet, more heavily forested areas when you're kind of out in the wilderness and you hear like the cicadas and you hear crickets and all that stuff? Like some, you might hear some of this tapping. 
Yes. But not able necessarily to distinguish from the rest of the creature symphony out there at night. Correct. It's a bittersweet creature symphony of... <laughs> I remember there being a sound cue in Practical Magic about it, but I, you know, it's been like three months since I've seen it, so I would need to watch it again to know for <laughs> sure. But you can hear it in there, or you can also find it on the internet on um, YouTube. I found a Death Watch beetle just tapping its head on some wood. It is kind of funny because you know it's like kind of puts its feet down and like really winds up and it's like. Bam, 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 bam. It's is like, it like oh. the is it like the hammer blows in the Mahler Symphony Six? Yes, but <laughs> like a lot of preparation for it. A lot of preparation, but it's so quick. So yeah. it's a little different. It's not that like kind of hit it and quit it. It's yeah. maybe more like a Shostakovich snare drum part or something. You know? Love it. They do provide a pretty significant economic impact in England specifically, which is kind of where they're centered because there's yeah. a lot of old wood in the buildings. Yes. And very they're very moldy. Hard. Lots I of mold. Yeah. Yeah. So much mold. They get into the rafters and you don't see them there. Any attempt to like use pesticides, it's not always very effective, but gas fumigation is an effective management of these beetles, but like okay. good luck fumigation. Your like 300 year old English manor. <sighs> they use ultrasound examination to kind of help focus and find where the epicenter of the beetle emergency is. Mm-hmm. And then they can use micro drilling and highly targeted injections of pesticides, which sounds really interesting. Also terrifying for these little larvae. I know. Can I just clarify something? I had a few questions that came up. So is it the eggs that kind of lay in wait potentially for 10 years or the eggs hatch and the larva is what? essentially like feeds for up to 10 years the eggs hatch after like 30 days okay gotcha so it's those that are feeding for all that time yeah they spend 10 years eating just eating just eating goals i guess that's what i did and then at the end of the 10 years they like wake up and for a month they just have sex and then they die that's kind of that seems to be of the two beetles we've experienced together that's the life cycle yeah this is so enlightening and they're like i don't know that cute is the right word to describe this beetle it kind of looks fuzzy and this one kind of has some sawdust on it i don't know that i find bugs particularly cute what do you think the praying mantis especially when it's in its you can do it stance is actually really cute did we ever talk about the green porno that video that i sent you (laughs) no Y'all need to just look it up on YouTube. It's called Green Porno. I think it is safe for work in terms of graphic content, but yeah. it might not be safe for work in terms of what your coworkers might think of you if they see you watching it. Sure. Is Isabella Rossellini in all of them? Like, that's her project? Yeah, I believe so. What a weirdo and God bless her. I watched that and I was like, I love this woman. I loved her from 30 Rock, but, uh-huh. and also Beethoven movie, Immortal Beloved. She was in that. Just this amazing, seasoned, acclaimed actress, just dressed as a praying mantis. She's fantastic. Engaging in the sexual act of the praying mantis with a like a model praying mantis. Very strange. Yeah, it's great. She was also in Death Becomes Her and Blue Velvet. Oh, yeah, she was in Death Becomes Her. Well, let's take a break and go, what do you say we go munch on some old, decaying, rotted, fungus-infested wood? Okay. <laughs> Are you a small fish, worm, crustacean, or mollusk? Do you sometimes just need a quick nap when you're swimming in the deep blue sea? Well, stop by Cephalopods, a micro-hotel owned and operated by Cephalopods. We know that you may think of us as predators, but we're also hoteliers. Cephalopods is a great place to rest and recharge before an important meeting. Or between work and a fun night out on the town. Or an economical solution if you miss the last swim home with the rest of the gang. Best of all, cephalopods is definitely not just a prey aggregator to make hunting easier for cephalopods. 
Triplopods is fully licensed and bonded, so you know it's legit. They even have memory foam pillows and turndown service. Legit. Help, we're stuck in the listener feedback. Uh, it smells like horse breath. Luke from Ireland asks, who does better nails, birds or mammals? Like, paints the nails or wears it better? Oh, that's it says, who does better nails? I would interpret that as paints the nails. Okay. Birds or mammals. I think that birds certainly, I feel like they know a lot more about talons. I feel like... They normally have less cuticle problems. I feel like humans, as mammals, have lots of cuticle problems. I feel like everybody's nails are kind of, like, scraggly. Yeah. But I guess I just wonder about, like, how dexterous are they with, like... beaks. Yeah. Like, because they can't control the nail polish with the wings, although the wings would provide a sort of drying effect on the nails, which seems like that could be useful. Or I could also see, like, a very fine feathered friend like a bird that has like a more fluffy downy feather making a good brush oh that's interesting and then then they could wing the nails dry yeah but it would all just depend but birds they can be very dexterous depending on the kind of bird because some are like using them to get into little places dig out little wormies and then some are very dexterous and you know have some sort of aesthetic grounding given the sorts of nests that they build Uh uh-huh I mean, mammals, some of them have the opposable thumbs working for them. Sure. But, like, do I want a chimpanzee painting my nails? I don't think so. And I don't think no. you want, like, a rhinoceros or, like... No. I, I think undulate squad might be good at nails, but when you're dealing with the rut, you know, like a potential rut situation... Yeah, their, their mind will be elsewhere. Right. I think that birds are a little bit more even-keeled, like, throughout the year... Right. Mammals seem to kind of go through things. Birds seem exacting. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the kind of trait you would look for in a nail artist. Yeah, I'm going to agree with that. Um, but Luke, our, our fish position is that birds. birds do better nails. For sure. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, 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 Percy from Australia asks, I want to date a bivalve. How should I impress one on a first date? Whoa. Definitely don't be fresh, as in water. That would kill them. Right. And offend them. Yeah. Yeah. You have to get the salinity right. You got to get your salinity down pat. Don't come on too strong. I would say trim any vibrissae that you may have. (laughs) I hate saying that as a vibrissae enthusiast myself. Yes. But I'm not trying to date five albs over here. I know know you're not. We've talked about this. We have. Oh, what else? What a bivalve like? I think don't go to a seafood restaurant or like an oyster bar yeah, don't or take anything them there. like that. I mean, a vegan restaurant, always safe. Yeah, always safe. Um, maybe just a more like Applebee's. I think oh, yeah. you're in the clear there. An Applebee's in the suburbs. I wouldn't recommend an urban Applebee's just because I feel like there's always like a layer of grease on everything. Right, right. I feel like bivalves might kind of like a trendy spot, like kind of a hidden spot that not everybody knows about. Maybe sure. like a gastro pub or right. like a, you know, like a cool hipster place. Like a chicken fried waffles kind of experience. Sure, sure. But not like one of those old school, like New York kind of American places. Right. Like no PJ Clark's. Yeah. Nothing like like that. Not a classic diner. Yeah, nothing like that. Because the second you walk in and and you're 
and that bivalve on your arm sees those oysters on ice lights out on your date. I would like to point out that this is not the only Percy from Australia that I've encountered that seems to have a proclivity for romance that I find maybe not how I would express myself. Percy Granger? That's who I'm thinking of. I wonder if they're related. I love that. I would just say my best advice generally, Percy, is to be yourself. Yes. I think that if you're very concerned about impressing your bivalve date, that maybe you're going to get lost in that and you may not represent who you are. And I think what's important for romance is that you find a match that likes you for you. Right. You know? Libra say and all. So what do we think? Um, Well, we said a lot, kind of. Like, don't go to a seafood restaurant. Right. Be yourself. Don't be fresh. Don't be fresh. And trim the vibrissae. Moderately. Moderately, I guess. Probably needs a trim anyway, right? Hey. That was not directed at you. Well, you were looking me in the eye when you said it. I always look you in the eye during this stuff. That's true. Ding, 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 ding. All right. So Susanna from Oklahoma sent us our favorite, a mate pair feet upon. Yippee skippy. So the animals we've been given, sponges. All sponges? Yeah, just sponges. Okay. Maybe we're uh, forecasting like an orgy situation. Oh. Mule or termite. Oof, this is tough. I mean, I don't know how you can suggest a sponge orgy and not expect me to just kind of raise a paw for that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That sounds like a... That leading, those two leading. Who doesn't love a sponge bath? Right? Mm. Which mm. might be, that might be a more of an argument for pairing. Yeah, I could see that. Because I also, like, as I intimated early in this episode, I don't know really what's going on with non-vertebrate reproductive systems. So I, w- I wouldn't sure. know what to do with a sponge, straight up. I feel like I wouldn't know how to give a sponge pleasure. <laughs> That's how I feel about sponges. You said that much more nicely than I did. What do I do with this? What do I do with this sponge? <laughs> no, but that's what I'm saying. Like, I feel like I know what I would want to do with the sponge, but I don't know what the sponge would want me to do with the sponge. That's what I'm trying to say. Fair. So I think in that case, yeah, I think definitely a pair situation. Yeah. Because I do know I wouldn't want to pair with a mule because I think we all know we've heard how mules are. Stubborn mule will not go. Stubborn. Stubborn, stubborn, stubborn. Yeah, I wouldn't want to pair with them. Which leaves feet upon or mate with. I think I would mate with the mule. Yeah, I think that's where I'm heading to. And then I would pair with the sponge for the potential for like sponge baths. Like right. intimacy I think is important in a long-term sure. mating or a long-term pairing. pairing situation, excuse me. And then who knows, maybe it would evolve into a mating relationship. Potentially. And then maybe by that point, if you've paired long enough, you can have some sort of conversation, whatever that might look like or manifest as, as to how the sponge would like to be pleasured. Yeah. Who yeah. doesn't love a nice discourse with a sponge? Sure. And then this kind of fits into our tasty protein snack for the termite. Put it in a taco, you're good to go. I'm willing to commit to that official yeah, dish. I like this. I think we're in agreement here. So we're mating with the mule, we're pairing with the sponge, and we're feeding upon the termite. Right. Ding ding, 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 ding. Keep them coming. Animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. 
Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens, and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club.